One quick announcement before we dive into God's Word. Uh, we shared with you a couple of weeks ago that our dear, dear friend Cheryl Ward, who for the past, I'll say the better part of 15 years, has been one person doing two jobs. I know it went a little off and on when Donna Chestnut was here, but for the most part, Cheryl would be both the administrative secretary and the financial secretary, which means she'd answer the calls and write the checks. She would kind of do all of that from the office. Uh, we're not dividing Cheryl in half, but she decided that the Lord was calling her just to one job. Well, I think still two jobs, but a second job elsewhere and still doing this. And so we asked you all to pray that we would find a replacement. And the Lord did raise up, and I want to announce and pray and uh, share with you all that Joel Bartholomew is the new administrative secretary. So we're both uh, thankful and excited to announce that Joel will be doing that. She started training with Cheryl this week. And I know when I asked Joel, I said one day, how's it going? She said, there are so many files on this computer. And I thought to myself, well, you know, everybody thinks we're a small church, but we're kind of at that in-between size. There's a lot going on in our midst. And so please pray for Joel. We know she would appreciate that. And when you call the church office, it's her voice now you're going to get saying something along the lines of, hi, Spruce Creek Church, this is Joel, may I help you, or something along. I'm not sure if, the, Cheryl, are those are the exact words? I'm not sure exactly how we do it, but something like that. But we know that she appreciates uh, your prayers. If you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning. And so we are looking this morning at two very brief verses, Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. And before I read the scripture, let's pray and ask the Lord to open the eyes of our hearts to hear his word. Father, we thank you for speaking to us and giving us your word that all scripture is breathed out, inspired by God, and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every work of service. We need you. As I read the scripture, we need you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher. We need you to teach us every step of the way. And so we pray now that you would open our hearts, that you would show us Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you that the scriptures portray that you bring glory to Jesus by taking from what is his and making it known, mediating fellowship and the presence of Jesus to our lives. And so we pray that you'll do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, immediately following the baptism of Jesus, is being thrust out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. We read, now after John, being John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We live in a culture today that is often described or referred to as postmodern. Now, who knows what that really means? That's what the scholars and the pundits and the writers and all of that like to say. I like how Tim Keller calls it. He calls it post-everything. He goes, well, we're post-Christian, we're post-modern, we're post we're just post. We're post-everything. And while there is no one agreed-upon definition of what postmodernism is. Nobody really knows exactly what it is. 
there's one characteristic, one descriptor, if you would, of postmodernism that everybody seems to agree in. And that is the rejection of what they call meta-narrative. That's going to be our $1,000 word of the day, by the way. Okay? We're, you might be going, Jeff, what in the world is meta-narrative? And you know what Jeff's going to say? I'm so glad you asked. Because here's what we mean by meta-narrative. Meta-narrative, the word meta means undergirding, and narrative is a story. So meta-narrative is an undergirding story. It is a story that stands underneath a culture, a community, a society, or a people. It's a unifying story that holds a people or a culture or a community together. In other words, it is comprehensive. It's all-encompassing. It's unifying. It's ennobling. It's energizing. It is empowering, and it is mobilizing. So, for example, in this country, for many years, and I'm going to say for many years because one of the things about our country today is there is no agreed-upon meta-narrative, which is one of the reasons you have so many culture wars out there. But in this country, for many years, the meta-narrative was the, were the ideals of democracy and freedom. It was a unifying purpose that everybody could agree on. It undergirded the entire culture, and it mobilized everyone around that story. Now, in today's culture, there is no one unifying story. And the sad thing is, while there ought to be one unifying, ennobling, mobilizing story in the church, unfortunately, most of the time, there is not one unifying, all-agreed-upon meta-narrative or story in the church. So I'll just give one example. I had never heard of this particular country band, but I guess their name, I've looked it up, it's called Diamond Rio. Anybody ever heard of Diamond Rio? Okay, I have two people in both services. That means four people heard of it. I had to look it up. But one of the lines and one of their songs' lyrics were, it's all interpretation. If you want to know the truth, you have to read between the lines. Know what that was saying? There's no unifying story. It's up to you. Make it up. You do the interpretation. You decide for yourself. You define for yourself what that story is. That presents the church with both a challenge and an opportunity. I want to focus this morning on the opportunity, although the challenge is that even within the church, we either do not know or don't agree upon our meta narrative, our undergirding, unifying story. But the opportunity is, we have the opportunity to bear witness to that story, to present that story to a world that is in desperate need of it. I love how Richard Pratt, who's the director of Third Millennium Ministries, one of our missions that we support, put it. He had a thesis. He says, everyone has lost the punch of Christianity because we have lost the story of Christianity. We need to get back in touch with the story of Christianity in order to live and offer the punch of Christianity to the world. And the meta narrative of Christianity is the kingdom of God. What we need to get a hold of is the absolute centrality of the kingdom 
of God. The text before us tells us Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Look with me at the text that Mark records for us. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming. That means this is his message, this is his teaching, this is his preaching. What is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming the gospel of God. So you've got Jesus preaching the gospel. And then it says exactly what that gospel is that he was preaching because it says, and saying. So here's the gospel. And notice, it doesn't say, and I'm about to die for your sins. It doesn't say, I'm about to justify you. All those things are true and those are benefits and things based on what he's saying. But notice what he says. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, if we look at the text, now I want you to wrestle with the text, please. Verse 14, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. Verse 15, he states exactly what the good news is. The good news is the kingdom of God has arrived. And if last week we learned from Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness that we need to hear the right message the message of the good news. This morning we learned that we need to understand what that good news exactly is. And so from this text, we're going to learn what the good news is. You must understand the good news. And two, you need to respond to the good news. Jesus gives us the content of the good news, and then he issues a pretty direct challenge to respond to the good news. In other words, you need to hear the good news that you must have the meta-narrative of the kingdom. You need to understand what that is and respond to it. What is that amorphous term, the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Jack Miller, who was a mentor of mine, somebody, he said, there is more lying done on Sunday morning than any other day in the week. He said at 11 o'clock, I guess he only had one service, at 11 o'clock the worst lying is done. A lot of people pray the Lord's Prayer, we do every week, your kingdom come, and he says we would be horrified if it actually happened. Because what we really pray, and he's going, he's kind of going, let's be honest with ourselves. That's the underlying message if you're not getting that. He's saying what we really pray is, Lord, I pray my agenda, my will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And he says, if God's kingdom showed up, the apple cart would be turned over and we would be utterly shocked. Have you ever thought about that? Do you know what it would look like if his kingdom showed up? One commentator writes in the gospel, when Jesus starts his public ministry and he proclaims the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the good news, what was Jesus announcing. What does it mean that the kingdom of God has come near? And this commentator defines it this way. He says, the kingdom of God refers to the rule and reign of God, and it is the dynamic of God's kingship being applied. You hear what he's saying? He's saying we have all our doctrines, the sovereignty of God, the election of God, God's justifying work, his grace, all of that. The kingdom is the dynamic of all that doctrine, but it's doctrine and the kingship of God applied. See, this is where Jack Miller was right. We love our doctrine. Do we love it applied to actually make a difference in our lives so that it changes how we... What's our purpose statement? 
living out of the gospel, which is the gospel of the kingdom, living out of it in the church, in the community, and in the world. So that the kingdom of God and the gospel becomes not just an abstract philosophy, but real flesh and blood that determines and changes everything in our lives. It is the dynamic of God's kingship being applied. He continues, he says, In the Old Testament, we find prophetic hopes that pointed to a time when God would intervene and bring restoration to his people Israel and to his fallen creation. It was about a people being reconciled to God, people being at peace with each other, all of the created order of plants and animals existing in harmony, wars ceasing, and governments submitting to the divine kingship of God. From the Old Testament perspective, it was like what Isaiah said when he said, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or again, as it says in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, isn't it interesting? Think about this. That text in Isaiah 61, picture the prophet, he's looking, and he doesn't know the name Jesus of Nazareth. It's almost like he's looking at a vast mountain range. And what does he see? He sees a time when a servant will be raised up. According to Isaiah, it's a suffering servant, and he'll be raised up. And what describes his program? What describes his agenda? What is he all about? He starts with the spirit of the sovereign Lord will anoint him, will equip him, will prepare him, will be upon him, and he'll do certain things. He'll bring good news to the poor, those who are at the end of themselves, both physically and spiritually. He'll bind up the brokenhearted. He'll comfort those who mourn. And he'll release from prison those who are held in captivity. Now think about this, because what did we see in Jesus' baptism? Did we not see the spirit of the sovereign Lord descend upon Jesus like a fluttering dove anointed him? Did we not see? And then Jesus, after being tempted in the wilderness, what does he say? He says, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The time has arrived. The time has now. So in other words, from Old Testament, according to one scholar, from Old Testament expectations, we get a sense that the kingdom of God was about God's great restoration the reinstatement of God's intentions for the entire creation. It is God's kingship being applied in a world that had gone awry. Of course, part of the struggle we have, and this is just being realistic, is how did the kingdom come? Did it come all at once and in fullness and in completion, where now we're going to have our children leading the wolf and the lion and the leopard together. Is our Sunday afternoon time, our families getting together today? Come on, kids, we're going to go find a cobra's hole and play by it. You're supposed to laugh at that, by the way. (laughs) 
Obviously, we don't do that. There's still the brokenhearted. There's still people in captivity. There are still the poor. There's still a need for reconciliation. There's still a need for restoration. So what did Jesus mean when he said the time is fulfilled? He means it's been launched. It's been inaugurated. It's not just at hand 40 billion years away. It's been launched, and especially as you go through not only the life, but when we get to the death and then the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the restoration, the reconciliation, this is what is meant by that term already, but not yet. It has already been inaugurated, already been launched. The time is now. It's arrived. It's at hand but it's not yet completed. And what's going now, we live in that in-between time where it's been launched and it's not completed. And God's agenda for this time is that we would be, the church would be, so to speak, if you think of God as the builder, the foreman, the architect of the kingdom. He's building it. We don't build the kingdom. He builds the kingdom. He draws up its plans. He leads it. He initiates it. But he has a toolbox. He has hammers and nails and jigsaw. I don't know too many tools. I have a nine iron and a five iron. But he has a toolbox. And his toolbox is, what did it say in Ephesians 2? We are God's workmanship. We are God's toolbox. As he architects and builds the kingdom, we implement it. We are his servants for implementing the work he is doing. He's doing kingdom work through his church. And as I've said many, many times before, it makes no sense to me, but he has no plan B. I look in the mirror on a daily basis, and I think about this, and I say, God, are you sure? I mean, do you want to rethink? I know you're sovereign, and you've thought this through, but I'm looking at me, and I'm looking at us. I'm looking at the church, and I'm going, really? Do you want to rethink this? How are we doing at being agents of reconciliation? Agents of restoration? Of bi- I loved Andrew's prayer. How are we doing weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice? That's part of binding up the brokenhearted. How are we- See, God does it, but we're his agents. How are we doing it listening and understanding and empathizing with the pain Do we even ask people what they're feeling underneath what's on the surface? I know what we all say on the surface. How are we doing at empathy? How are we doing at being agents of God's kingdom reconciliation and restoration? See, the picture of what's going on, I think the best illustration that describes what's going on here and what the kingdom is about comes from C.S. Lewis's Narnia Tales, the great children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It doesn't matter if you have children or don't have children. It doesn't matter what your age. I would recommend you read C.S. Lewis's Narnia Tales. They're some of the best books out there. But in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have the four children, Lucy, Peter, Edmund, and Susan. And they stumble into the magical land of Narnia from the wardrobe. The true king of the land is the majestic lion, Aslan, who is Lewis's Christ-like figure. When the children first stumble in Narnia, it is under the rule of the evil white witch. She's cursed the land so that it is perpetually never-ending wintertime. 
and there's no Christmas. And as the children, at one point in the story, though, as the children are starting to explore and get to know the land, Christmas does come. As Father Christmas comes, giving gifts. And then all of a sudden, there are small signs everywhere. Springtime begins to burst out. Flowers begin to bloom. The birds begin to chirp. What is going on? Aslan is on the move. The white witch's reign is weakening. Her reign, her grip is breaking. She's being defeated. It's forever been broken. And we come to understand that whenever Aslan swoops in and draws near and breaks out in the midst of the bitter winter of the white witch, her spell is broken. We have in this text Jesus appearing, proclaiming the gospel of God, and he's on the move saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Do we live, though, in such cynicism and despair that we've lost sight of that? You ever realize why Paul's, and Paul knew as well or better than anyone, the already and not yet, why he said these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Have we lost sight? I know the world is a hurting place. The reality of the inauguration of the kingdom does not deny the not yet and does not deny the hurt in the world. But has the church lost sight of the power of the kingdom? The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church. He's in our midst and he's real. There's real power in the church. Have we forgotten that truth? And have we lost hope? So what is the answer? We have to understand the good news, but we also have to respond to the good news. And the answer is the simple direct challenge that Jesus laid out in verse 15. He said, first of all, you have to understand the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. That means you have to relate every other doctrine, everything in the the context of the kingdom, including our response, which is repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel, which means there's a couple things to point out here. First of all, look at repentance and faith. They go together. They're two sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other. They're distinguished, but they go, they're connected. They're intimately connected. And two, notice what Jesus says when he says repent and believe in the gospel. Because to believe in the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. So in other words, it's not simply to believe in the fact that Jesus died for your sins. That's part of it. You have to believe that. But my key word there is you can't just believe that. Believing that is not believing in the gospel of the kingdom. You can't believe just that God justifies you. You have to believe that, but that's not all you believe. You're believing in the gospel of the kingdom, which means Jesus is here laying a challenge directly to our ultimate allegiance. See, he says the gospel of the kingdom, and you want to know what the kingdom challenges? The kingdom challenges who and what is our Lord. See, one of the things is we need a new model. See, we're all so used to democracy and the democratic model. 
that we've got to realize that's not a biblical model. It's great in a nation, it's not a biblical model. Do you want to know what the biblical model is? It's an imperial model. It's an imperial model that says, see, the Bible's not a democracy. You know what the Bible says? Jesus is king and we're not. And if Jesus is king, a king doesn't say, oh, let's sit down. You all are my cabinet members. I want to get your input into this. How do you think I'm running the world? Hmm. Let's think. I'd like to... See, I would love that. I could be the secretary of Jeff. I come in, I could, I'd make a great cabinet member. But that's not how God runs his kingdom. His kingdom is he's king, he's Lord, and I'm not. And that means repentance means change the direction that your ultimate allegiance is to him. Above everything else, you surrender to his kingship, his lordship. You know, the number one sin, Tim Keller words it this way, and I think it's the best way to word it, the sin underneath all the other sins. You have all the other sins that the Bible talks about, but the sin underneath all those sins, that especially in the Old Testament, but the New as well, the Old Testament goes after, is idolatry. Just look through the history of Israel. Why was Israel told to be careful when they entered into the promised land that you don't have and don't adopt the gods of the other nations? They will be a snare to you. What's that going after? Idolatry. God and God alone is to be your only God. You're to worship and serve and covenantally belong to him only. The Ten Commandments. The first two talk about have no other gods before him and make no graven image of him. And commandments 3 through 10, whenever you break commandments 3 through 10, you're ultimately breaking commandments 1 and 2. When you steal, when you murder, when you commit adultery, whatever the sin is, whenever you're doing that, you're putting something else above God. You're saying, this is more important than my allegiance to God. Jesus is laying out a kingdom challenge here. He's going after our ultimate allegiance. Listen to how New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he's got a new book coming out on the crucifixion in a couple of weeks. And here's an excerpt from his upcoming book. He says, humans are called not just to keep certain moral standards in the present and to enjoy God's presence here and hereafter, but to celebrate, worship, procreate, and take responsibility within the rich, vivid, developing life of creation. According to Genesis, that is what humans were made for. He writes, the diagnosis of the human plight is then not simply that humans have broken God's moral law, offending and insulting the creator whose image they bear, though we do that, but this law-breaking is a symptom of a much more serious disease. Morality is important, but it isn't the whole story. Called to responsibility, Within and over the creation, humans have turned their vocation upside down, giving worship and allegiance to forces and powers within creation itself. The name for this is idolatry. The result is slavery and finally death. It isn't just that humans do wrong things and so incur punishment. This is one element of the larger problem, which isn't so much about a punishment that might seem almost arbitrary, rather it is about direct consequences. When we worship and serve forces within the creation, the creation to which we were supposed to manage 
and have authority over and be responsible, we hand over our power to other forces only too happy to usurp our position. We humans have thus, by abrogating our own vocation, handed over power and authority to non-divine and non-human forces, which have then run rampant, spoiling human lives, ravaging the beautiful creation, and doing their best to turn God's world into a hell and hence into a place from which people might want to escape. Jesus here is going after repent and believe in the gospel means who and what are you living for? And who is this king? When Jesus says repent and believe in the gospel, who is the king who's the king of the kingdom? He's the king who ultimately, and Mark will bring this out as we go through the gospel, takes his own medicine when he bears upon himself the curse of all of us, usurping our role, abrogating our vocation, worshiping and serving the created order rather than the creator. When Mark says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And why did he die on a cross? As Paul wrote to the Colossians, he died on the cross in order to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The heart of the gospel is the kingdom. Salvation is a kingdom matter. Redemption is a kingdom purchase made at the cost of Jesus' life where he's purchasing you out of the kingdom of darkness to belong to his kingdom, to be an agent for his kingdom. Who and what are you living for? Jesus appeared in Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is now. It's fulfilled. It's here. The gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would, on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, be turning our direction towards giving our allegiance to you, surrendering to you, and living for you and your kingdom. Help us to see the centrality of the kingdom. Help us to see the king of the kingdom who gave his life for us as a ransom in order to buy us back, in order to purchase us. Help us to see, as we take and eat this bread and drink this cup, help us to see you bearing upon yourself, Lord Jesus, every detail of the covenant in order to enact a new covenant with us, where we're redeemed, where we're brought home from exile, where we're delivered out of bondage, where we're given eyes to see. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.